I've titled this sermon, Sovereignty and Evangelism. And remember what the goal is in our and series. We take two biblical doctrines, doctrines that we see in scripture and contrary to how the rest of the world or the rest of Christianity might handle or mishandle these doctrines, we hold them together. Now, the Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of sinners from beginning to end. Uh, Salvation is from the Lord, period. And at the same time, we are responsible to evangelize. These are clear truths that we see in Scripture, but they are often misunderstood. Now, when I speak of God's absolute sovereignty, That's a general term encompassing many different aspects of the doctrines concerning salvation. Uh, Take almost every doctrine concerning God's sovereignty and salvation, and if that's all you had, the argument is, theoretically, that you would not evangelize at all. Take the doctrine of election, for example. God has chosen in eternity past those whom he will certainly save in relative time. But if God has already determined to save particular souls, what difference does it make if I evangelize? What about the doctrine of total inability? Uh, Unregenerate man is, as Paul said, spiritually dead in their sins. Because of the fall, every aspect of man's nature has become entirely corrupt. And because we are only free to act in accordance with our sinful nature, we are not free to do any spiritual good In the sight of God, Paul says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Why? For it is not even able to do so. He writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so man, in his natural state, lacks the spiritual ability to treasure Christ to truly believe in him and to follow him. And so apart from the work of the Spirit of God in conversion and regeneration, no one seeks for God, Romans 3. The Lord asks, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Answer, no. We can't change our nature in our own power. Well, again, if that's the case, what good would evangelism do? What about the doctrine of what is called irresistible or effectual grace? Uh, Precisely because we are spiritually dead in our sins, if we are to have life, God needs to make us alive and change our natures and cause us to come to Christ. Well, if that's the case, if I can't change anyone's heart, if God must do it, why evangelize? You see how these doctrines can theoretically stiffen your evangelism. Now, the argument goes something like this. How can you logically believe that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation when we are to proclaim a universal gospel? Because the implication of a universal gospel call is that man has all that he needs in himself to repent and believe, and therefore, he does not need any extra grace from God, let alone an efficacious grace. The implication of a universal gospel call is to say, well, maybe mankind isn't as spiritually dead as we thought. And maybe God only chooses who to save based on how they freely choose to respond to the gospel. And you see how quickly you distort 
other doctrines. This is what happens when you let one doctrine affect the rest. Now, I imagine as I'm speaking, many of you may be feeling like this right now. If this is all new to you, if you're, if you're here and you're like, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? Election, effectual grace, let me just say, you are in the right place. Stay and journey with us, and, and by God's grace, you'll see what the scriptures teach concerning salvation. If this is you right now, that is okay. That is okay. Now again, the question is this, if God is sovereign to save, why evangelize? And the answer is very simple. We evangelize because the King of Kings commands us to evangelize. Well, can't God just save his elect whenever he wants? Yes, but it has pleased the Lord to save through the means of the proclamation of the gospel. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's why we evangelize. In the mere pleasure of God and his inscrutable wisdom, he has decreed to save all his elect through the proclamation of this foolish and yet glorious gospel. When the gospel comes to the elect, it comes with power. Paul wrote a couple of verses earlier, for the word of the cross, which is the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is not just a set of facts. It's not just a mere invitation to acknowledge certain things. No, the gospel carries with it the power of God unto salvation for those who are called. The spirit is active through the means of the gospel and creates faith in the heart so that Paul can say that by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, there is far more to all of this, but I wanted to give you a bird's eye view. God is absolutely sovereign to save, and we are commanded to preach the gospel precisely because God has willed to save his elect through the means of the gospel. That's the general overview. But I wanna get very specific this morning because there is one doctrine that is the most highly despised in reformed circles primarily because of its relationship to the gospel proclamation, and that is the doctrine of limited atonement. And just so you know, I use this term synonymously with definite atonement and particular redemption. It's all the same thing. This doctrine teaches that Christ died for his elect alone, and only those for whom Christ died will be saved. And where I want to go this morning flows out well from a sermon I preached last time from 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. This doctrine was already on my heart when I was asked what I wanted to do for this series. And in that sermon, to more strongly highlight the glory of the full and final accomplishments of the cross, we examined a fast-growing false doctrine called universal atonement, which teaches that the extent of the atonement of Christ reaches to all men without exception, including those now in hell, 
because that atonement didn't actually secure the salvation of any of those for whom Christ died, that crucial element of salvation falls to you, which in my view diminishes the glory of the all-sufficient atoning work of the cross. Because if sinners are saved by something other than the blood of Christ alone, if there was something lacking in the cross to actually save, that is not good news for sinners like us. Now, if I could put it in these terms, Limited Atonement says this, if Christ died for you, you are saved. Unlimited Atonement says this, though Christ died for you, you may or may not be saved. That's up to you. And whether or not you freely choose in your own power to turn away from all your sin to have Christ, which I can tell you, if that was the case for me, I would never be saved. In this system, the determinative factor in your salvation is not Christ and his death on the cross. No, your decision, your will to believe is the determinative cause of whether or not you are saved in the end. Do you see the difference? Now, the arguments against the doctrine of limited atonement are primarily concerned with its relationship to evangelism. Okay, and the argument goes something like this. If Christ didn't die for everyone who's ever lived, then isn't salvation not available to everyone? And if salvation isn't available to everyone, doesn't that mean we can't offer it to everyone? I'll use their own words. Since the offer of salvation is clearly to go to all people, that's right, there must be a payment made on behalf of those to whom the gospel offer is extended. If no payment has been made to the non-elect, then we cannot say to the non-elect that God offers salvation to them. Again, you see how this doctrine of a universal gospel call leads people to modify these other doctrines. And, and so the argument against a limited atonement is primarily the doctrine of a universal gospel call, which they say requires a universal provision of salvation. The glorious, particular, effectual accomplishments of the cross flattened out because of a universal gospel call. And apparently we cannot logically hold to both a limited atonement and a universal gospel call. Well, this is where we are. And uh, this morning I wanna address this issue specifically. Let's begin with addressing the most important question. Is this biblical? Is this biblical? And for the sake of time, we'll look at three passages in scripture where we see the sovereignty of God to save a particular people and in the very same breath, a universal gospel call. The first one is in Matthew eleven twenty five to 30. Uh, and to give you some context, in verses 20 to 24, Jesus calls for the judgment of the cities of Chorazin, Tyre, and Sidon. These cities are held fully responsible for their refusal to turn from their sin. We don't deny man's responsibility to repent of their sins. So here comes the light of the world, God in the flesh, but these men who loved darkness refused to come to the light, and so they did not repent. But look at what Jesus says. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, 
from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So Jesus doesn't just acknowledge God's sovereignty, he praises the Lord for both hiding and revealing what is required to know the Father and the Son. And listen, this is not unjust. God is not bound to give grace to our fallen race. When angels sin, there is no redemption. There's no grace. It's an immediate judgment as is right. And the Lord has seen fit in his wisdom and kindness to open the eyes of not all, but some of our fallen race. And just note, the Lord didn't actively blind their eyes, which would have otherwise seen the glory of Christ. No, he, he just simply chose in his mere pleasure not to give grace. He's not bound to give grace. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The Lord is acting in accordance with justice, which is right. And yet, on the heels of this declaration that God is sovereign to save, in the very same breath, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I hope the colors aren't too confusing. Blue is sovereignty, the sovereignty of God to save, and green is the gospel call. Hope you guys can see that. Now, how can the Lord call all who are weary to come to him for salvation after he just said that no one can come to him except by his own will? Is the omniscient Lord not aware that believing in a particular redemption and at the same time a universal gospel call is incompatible? Well, apparently to Christ, they fit together just fine. He holds them both without any tension in his own mind. That's number one. Number two, John 6. There's at least three examples in this one chapter, but we'll still count it as one. Uh, The first one is in verses 35 to 37. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Here is a call to whosoever will come. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Hmm. Why haven't they come to Christ? Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Sovereign election of a particular people. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to Christ will certainly come. If you come to Christ, it's because the Father has effectively chosen to give you to Christ. And at the same time, Jesus says to all within the sound of his voice that the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus holds both of these truths together. Number two, verses 39 to 40, the purple, I don't know if you guys guys can see that. You guys have your own Bibles. The purple uh, is highlighting the parallel structure in this text. Okay, I won't use purple anymore. Now, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is the sovereign election and salvation of a particular people. For this is the will of my Father. Here's the call. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 
Whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life, and they will be raised up on the last day. But those who are raised up on the last day are only those who are given to the Son by the Father. Do you see how these doctrines flow together? The one doesn't cancel or modify the other. Number three, verses 44 to 47. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is the effectual call of a particular people, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Now, is this all people without exception? No. Jesus explains who is taught. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. It is a sovereign, effectual call to Christ. If the Father taught you, as it were, you will come to Christ. And at the same time, Jesus says to everyone listening, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. This is a universal call to believe. Now, let's look at verses 63 to 65, just as a side note. The Spirit is the one who gives life, period. Sovereign to save. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Listen, though Jesus knew from the very beginning who would not believe because unlike us, Jesus knows who the elect are. He knows whom the Father has given him. And yet he still calls everyone within the sound of his voice, to believe these doctrines go together. Well, we were taught not to do subpoints of subpoints in seminary, but that's okay. They didn't know I'd have a PowerPoint. (laughs) This is where we are. In the back of our bulletin here, subpoint number three of point number one, uh, Romans 9 and 10. In Romans chapter 9, Paul explains God's sovereign election in light of Israel's unbelief. And if you want to talk about particularity, just think that God chose one nation out of all of them to bless and save eternally. It wasn't that God just foresaw that at one point in time, all Israel, even the Israelite children, to be born for the following thousand years after the tribulation will just happen to believe in Christ and be saved. No, God chose to save all Israel and all their descendants who are yet to be born Their free will has nothing to do with it. In any case, Romans 9. Let's just skim the chapter, starting in verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, God would have us know for certain that he does not choose who to save based upon what man will do. Verse 16, so then, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. I don't know how it can be said more clearly than this. Salvation is not up to the will of man to either choose or reject Christ in the same way that it does not belong to man who runs or works to be saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord and his mercy, period. Now, there have always been those who argue that God can't be absolutely sovereign in the salvation of sinners because that would make him unjust, Why would God choose to save some and not others? Well, 
Paul has heard this response many times, and so he predicts what his opponents would say against what he's been clearly teaching about God's absolute sovereignty to save, and and he says this, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. May it never be. The man-centered response to this doctrine is to say, well, if God is the one who ultimately chooses who to save, well, then he can't be righteous. He can't be good because if sinners can't repent and believe in Christ uh, in their own strength and salvation is up to the will of God, how can God find fault in their refusal to repent when they are unable to repent? Well, again, Paul predicts this response. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? God has clearly taught us in his word that he is sovereign to save. And he has clearly taught us in his word that man ought to repent of their sins. And so at this point, the implication behind this question is, what kind of God is this? And so here's the answer that scripture gives to all of those who demand that almighty God explain himself to us. Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded it say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, if you have a problem with what God is doing, Paul says to you, who do you think you are? Will you charge God with wrong for saving those who don't deserve to be saved and leaving the rest to his justice? We are all part of that same fallen lump. All of us deserve to be cast into hell eternally, but God, for the praise of his grace, chose to save some from this fallen lump. And again, God is not obligated to save anyone. Election and particular redemption are not violations of justice. It is a grace that God would save any sinner. So Romans 9 God is absolutely sovereign to save. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he leaves the rest to his justice. Now let's look at chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches, For all who call on him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right after Romans 9, Paul didn't even put down his pen, and here is a universal call to believe in Christ. Neither God nor the authors of Scripture found any problem uh, holding these two doctrines together, and we shouldn't either. But major problems arise when we see a universal call to faith, and then because of that, seek to also universalize the extent of the atonement. But as we've seen, a particular redemption is not incompatible with a universal gospel call. On the contrary, Scripture presents both of them together. And really, God's absolute sovereignty is the foundation upon which the call goes forth. But more on that later. Now, switching gears here, For those who deny God's absolute sovereignty and salvation, they argue, and I quote, if Christ did not pay for the sins of the non-elect, then it is impossible 
to genuinely offer salvation to the non-elect, since there is no salvation to offer them. And that's assuming uh, we know who the non-elect are, I guess. But that is a fair point, and, and that brings us to number two. It is genuine. It is genuine. How can God's offer of salvation to all people be genuine if the Father didn't choose all and if the Son didn't die for all? Well, what does it mean for an offer to be genuine? An offer is genuine so long as if the terms of the offer be observed, that which is offered be actually granted. In other words, for God to genuinely offer salvation to sinners on the condition of repentance and faith, it must be that if any sinner repents and believes in Christ, God will not fail to save him. And if God is faithful to save every sinner who believes in Christ, and he is, then the offer of salvation is genuine. And friends, no one who has come to Christ has failed to be saved. Listen to the call of Scripture John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 6.37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so among a crowd of people, we can genuinely call to all of them and say, if you repent and believe in Christ, you will be saved. This is a genuine offer of salvation. There is no deceit. It's not a lie. Now, remember last time what I said, the Lord genuinely takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18.32. And the Lord genuinely commands all people to repent and believe and obey the Son. That is the command of the gospel. But the Lord has not decreed to save all through the gospel. He has chosen some and not all. And at the same time, the promise of salvation is genuine. Christ has never and will never turn away any sinner who has come to him in simple faith. And there is so much more we could say about this, but we need to move on. Number three, this doctrine of limited atonement actually preserves proper evangelism. It preserves proper evangelism. The arguments against limited atonement goes something like this, and I quote, if you hold to limited atonement, it makes evangelization confusing. When I go witnessing to people and I say, Jesus died for you, I don't know if that's true or not. Okay, another guy writes, part of the gospel is telling an unbeliever that Christ died for you. Well, is that true? Is that true? Is that proper evangelism? Is that what we call people to believe when we proclaim the gospel to them? Well, first of all, to say that Christ died for you biblically is to say that you are saved. If Christ died for you, then he offered himself as your substitute, bearing the wrath of God for you, and therefore there is no more wrath left for you to bear. To say that Christ died for you is to say that Christ has redeemed you, and he has reconciled you to the Father. To say that Christ died for you is to say that you died with him, and you've been crucified with him, and you've risen to newness of life. Friends, there is a world of glory behind that phrase, and we shouldn't take it lightly. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.14, one died for all, therefore all died. 
What's Paul saying? He's saying that Christ's death was effectual. All those for whom Christ died, died with him. He says in Romans 6, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. All those who are united to Christ in his death, they will certainly be born again in the newness of a resurrected life, which is to say, saved, which is not all people, but only those for whom he died. You see, the phrase, Christ died for you, does not belong to the unbeliever. When you tell someone that Christ died for them, that is a matter of assurance of salvation. And only believers have a right to that blessed assurance. What unbelievers are called to believe is not that Christ died for them in particular, but that Christ has paid the wages of sin for everyone who believes, and that he saves every sinner who has come to him in faith. Now just imagine you say to an unbeliever, Christ died for you. He bore the wrath of God for you. Okay, cool, cool. Does that mean I won't suffer the wrath of God in hell since he already bore that wrath? Well, no, you may still suffer the wrath of God if you don't believe. Well, did, did Christ die for all my sins? Yes. Well, did he not die for the sin of unbelief? And if he did die for the sin of unbelief, why should I perish for it? How can I gain any comfort knowing that Christ did for me what he's done for every soul in hell? Christ may have died for me, like you say, but unless his death actually secured my salvation and has made amends for all my sin, including the sin of unbelief, then I may perish forever. And therefore, such a statement that Christ died for me means nothing at all. Whenever you see in the New Testament, Christ died for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. He bore our sins in his body. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ released us from our sins by his blood. They are speaking to those who are already saved, to those who are actually released from all their sins by his blood, which is not everyone who's ever lived, but only those for whom he died. Look at Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is the us everyone who's ever lived? Keep reading. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. His blood justified us. His blood actually affected our justification. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you see how powerful this death is? Whoever the us is, the death of Christ actually reconciled them to God, and they will certainly be saved now that he ever lives to intercede for them. If Christ died for you, you will be saved. Because if his death certainly justified you and reconciled you to God, how much more by his life will you certainly come into possession of that for which he died? Your justification was accomplished on the cross and will be applied in relative time through the means of faith. Look at Romans 8, 34. 
Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Christ died for his elect, and they will certainly be saved. This argument would make no sense if Christ died for everyone and salvation was up to man's free will. You could certainly bring a charge against those for whom he died, if that's the case. Well, you just didn't believe. And you separated yourself from his love. Friends, that's not right. That's not right. The love of God in Christ is not a general, impotent, unsaving love. It's not a take it or leave it kind of love. God did not simply make salvation available to no specific people and you just happened to pick it up. No, the love of Christ is particular and that's what makes it personal and that's what makes it precious. The death of Christ for those whom he foreloved is sovereignly effectual to actually save to the uttermost. Now you say, well, what about 1 John 2, 2? This is the verse that is heralded as the key to dismantling limited atonement, so let's look at it. The Apostle John says this, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The argument here is that John is saying Christ propitiated not just the sins of the elect, but also the sins of the non-elect. But one of the first questions you need to ask with passages like this is, what does it mean for sins to be propitiated? The word propitiation means to effectively satisfy divine wrath. Now, is divine wrath satisfied for everyone who's ever lived? No. The road to destruction is broad, and many find it. Jesus did not satisfy divine wrath for countless souls who will be the objects of God's unsatisfied wrath forever in hell. John Calvin writes, I pass over the dreams of the fanatics who make this a reason to extend salvation to all the reprobate. He he sees the issue here as well. The clear doctrine of limited atonement is flattened out largely because of this verse. He says, such a monstrous idea is not even worth refuting. I had to include that. John does not include the reprobate, but refers to all who would believe and those elect who were scattered through the various regions of the earth. In John's gospel account, oh man, I'll read it for you guys. I learned my lesson with the colors. In John's gospel account, there's a syntactical parallel to this verse. The various colors are are meant to show the parallelism between this verse and, and John 11. Uh, the first one is 1 John 2, 2. I just read it. So I'll read the bottom verse. Jesus was going to die for the nation. That's the nation of Israel. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This parallel gives additional reason to understand the word world as the children of God, God's elect scattered throughout the whole world. In John 17 
In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays as the advocate, not of the whole world, but of the elect alone. He says, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And he goes on to pray for his elect who have yet to believe. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus is particular in his high priestly intercession, and he extends his intercession to those who have yet to believe. And here again, we see that the gospel is the means through which Christ will save his own through faith. John ten sixteen, and I have other sheep which are not from this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. This is a consistent theme in John's writings. The point of 1 John 2.2 is not to teach a universal atonement. It is highlighting how great an advocate and high priest believers have in Christ who actually satisfied God's wrath for them so that even when they sin, they can know God won't count it against them. And therefore, such a view that Christ is the propitiation of those whose sins are not actually propitiated would bring no comfort to those to whom John writes, which is the intention of this passage. So all this to say that a universal atonement is not a necessary foundation for a universal gospel call. Though it sounds very appealing to the carnal mind to say Christ died for you, it is biblically unsound and practically meaningless. And so it is often the case that a universal atonement actually distorts and confuses the gospel and the gospel presentation. And therefore, a biblical view of the limited extent of the atonement actually preserves proper evangelism. And lastly, number four, It fuels passionate evangelism. It fuels passionate evangelism. The doctrine of limited atonement, far from putting the brakes on evangelism, actually empowers evangelism. The world's greatest and most passionate evangelists were those who held to a limited atonement, Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, John Flavel, John Bunyan, John Piper, John MacArthur, lots of Johns. <laughs> How is it that these men who hold to a particular redemption can at the same time passionately preach the gospel to all people? It's because those who preach the gospel founded upon a definite atonement can rest absolutely assured that their proclamation will be effective according to the infallible purpose of our sovereign God. It's precisely because God is sovereign to save and that he will save his own through the gospel that we proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone if I may be used as a means to save his elect in this city. In Acts 18, Paul, in the midst of the blatant refusal of the Jews to believe the gospel, was encouraged by the Lord who said to him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking the gospel. And do not be silent, for I have many people in this city. In other words, keep preaching the gospel, Paul. My chosen people are around you. They will believe. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. And even if 
our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what the gospel is. It's the glory of Christ. It's not merely facts or information. The gospel is a person who is to be seen with spiritual sight. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, the gospel treasure, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. If our gospel is veiled, it's not because God is impotent to save. He needs only to speak light into a darkened heart, and they will see. And he does so through this gospel treasure that we carry, this message about Christ. J.I. Packer wrote, were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen, and there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. He's right. He understands how far mankind has fallen. Fallen man is not just struggling to stay alive. No, if you could see the spiritual state of fallen men, you'd see what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 37, this valley of dry bones. Ezekiel 37, he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Um, I don't think so. That's what I would say. And he answered, O Lord God, you know. That's a great answer. Then he said to me, prophecy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Sounds kind of pointless to request that they hear you, these bones with no ears or pulse. In any case, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I'll put sinews on you and make flesh come up upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you so that you may come alive and then you will know that I am the Lord. This is a great illustration of what happens when we proclaim the message of the gospel and apart from the work of the Spirit of God to give life to dry bones through the message the gospel proclamation would be the most vain endeavor you could imagine. My passion to evangelize is not fueled by the knowledge that salvation is ultimately up to the fallen will of sinful men, of one who is a spiritual skeleton. No, my passion to evangelize is fueled by the knowledge that God will certainly and infallibly grant new life and new hearts and a new spirit to his elect through the message the sovereign power of God fuels my evangelism, not the fallen will of man. And so church, proclaim Christ to every man and see how the Lord will save in spite of their spiritual deadness and hardness of heart and love of sin. Salvation does not belong to man's choice. Salvation belongs to the Lord through and through. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I'll close with this. What is ultimately offered in the gospel? It's Christ. 
Christ offers you himself in the gospel. The option on the table in the gospel is not heaven or hell. It's Christ or no Christ. The gospel is not, will you have heaven and avoid hell, but will you have him? Will you have him or your sin? When we call for faith, it's not a mere intellectual exercise. The call to faith includes having Christ as your supreme love and your highest treasure and your soul's greatest and only portion. And God's people repent and believe because they see that in the gospel, Christ himself is to be gained. He is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure hidden in the field and by God's grace, they see it and they are willing to sell all to have him. And listen, you don't get that spiritual sight on your own. God must open your eyes and when he does, when he opens the eyes of his elect in the proclamation of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the byproduct of receiving Christ is that they also receive eternal life. Do you see? Do you see? Sinful men don't naturally love Christ more than their sin. No, John 3, 19, men love the darkness rather than the light. And so no man in his own power can truly treasure Christ in faith. That is God's to give. So we proclaim him. We proclaim Christ and leave it to the Lord to open blind eyes to see his glory. Before coming to Christ, we see the cross and on it reads, whosoever will may come. And you go through it And you look back and the sign says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the order. And they're both true. God has chosen a people to save in Christ and Christ gave his life for them and they will hear his voice in the gospel and they will come to him. It has pleased the Lord to save his people in this way. And so we proclaim the gospel and trust in his sovereign power to save. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what glorious truths we've heard this morning from your word. Your word is clear from beginning to end that salvation belongs to you alone. What a glorious savior we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that our eyes will be open to see the power of this cross, this cross actually saved actually redeemed, actually purchased every soul and reconciled every soul for whom Christ died. Oh, may we know the power of the words, it is finished. Lord, you have done it all and you will see every soul whom you've redeemed in glory and you will be satisfied with the work you've accomplished on their behalf and you won't lose one precious soul for whom you died. I pray that the people of Good Shepherd Bible Church would be a people of the word, that they would treasure the things that you've revealed about yourself and your saving work on their behalf. And may we grow in our love for you because we see what that rugged cross has accomplished for us. Oh Lord, get what you are worthy of in this church. And may we be a church that proclaims the excellencies of the gospel of the glory of Christ's and trust in your sovereign power to save. In Jesus' name, amen.